With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I think most of the prosecutors, they believe in what they're doing. And so it is rewarding to get a conviction, to feel like your hard work has been paid off. And hopefully you think, especially in FCPA case, sending a deterrent message to the market, especially a big, complex financial case like this, instead of maybe some other cases that involve smaller companies or things like that. I think this case had a uh, particularly interesting angle to it, Tom, if I could address that, which is the sure. circumvention of inter- internal accounting controls. That was James Kukios, partner at Morrison and Forrester, talking about the Roger Ung conviction at trial. In this podcast, we take up issues from the Morrison and Forrester April 2022 anti-corruption newsletter, including the Ung trial, internal control provisions, the Sterry Cycle Enforcement Action, and the government reliance on corporations for help. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with Erica Salmon Byrne. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with James Kukios, Morrison and Forster partner, to talk about the firm's top 10 international anti-corruption developments from the April newsletter. Welcome back, James. Thanks, Tom. Always great to be here. So, James, we had, as always, some interesting matters reported by you guys from the month of April. And the first one was a waste management, a waste management company, resolved Latin American bribery allegations. What did you see in this enforcement action that caught your attention? Well, a couple of different things, Tom, maybe just for the basics. This was April 20th, and DOJ and SEC announced a coordinated foreign bribery resolution with Stericycle related to alleged bribery of foreign officials in Brazil, Mexico, and Argentina. Jay re- reached a three-year deferred prosecution agreement, or DPA, with the company, and then the SEC also had an order ordering discord as well. There's a couple of interesting things in there. Number one, I think to start out with is the continued international cooperation with Brazil. So both DOJ and SEC are giving credit to the company for monies paid to Brazilian authorities. DOJ is giving up over $9 million credit for fines paid to Brazilian authorities. 
And the SEC is offsetting just over $4 million of disgorgement paid to Brazilian authorities. So I think this is a good, another good example of DOJ and SEC working with their international law enforcement partners and trying to apply that anti-piling on policy, to use the DOJ term, where they actually do give credit and try not to double tax companies for the same, for the same offenses. So that's number one. Number two, this is the first um, DOJ resolution since the October 2021 DAG, Deputy Attorney General Monaco announcement, that Jay was going to more closely scrutinize recidivism in the corporate context. And we really didn't know at that point, what does that mean? How is DOJ going to weigh those things? Are they going to look at everything? Is environmental the same as anti-bribery? Is civil the same as criminal? Is U.S. the same as international? And this was really the first clue that DOJ gave us about how they're going to look at that. And in the relevant considerations in the DPA, DOJ said that they did take into consideration the fact that the company, quote, has some history of prior civil and regulatory settlements, but no prior criminal. And so that suggests that at the very least, DOJ is going to look at civil and regulatory settlements is potentially less relevant to that corporate recidivism analysis than a criminal resolution, which makes sense in a lot of ways, but it was good to actually see that put in practice and have a little bit more explication of what that meant. And I think the third thing, this is a a colorful resolution in that the alleged bribe funds were in part generated by submitting fake invoice, fake accounting entries, getting that money and then funneling that money to officials through third parties, but they tracked them. And obviously, as usual, maybe some companies do, but they didn't call them bribes. They didn't call them illegal payments. They called them things like little pieces of chocolates. And uh, I'll probably mispronounce this, but alfajores, which is apparently a popular Argentinian cookie. And uh, I had a, a former associate who I worked on a lot of FCPA cases with, who's now in AUSA in Puerto Rico, but he was originally from Argentina, and he really uh, he wrote to me about this one. He said, Alfa Juarez. He was pretty excited to see that. So that's just a, in a serious note that does reflect you need to look at your books. Are there strange things being recorded there? This is not the first time chocolate has been used. I remember the Orthofix case. Chocolate was also the code word for bribe. So it's important when you're doing an accounting review or if you're doing an email review to look for words like this, chocolate and things like that, to see if, are they talking, sometimes chocolate is not just the chocolate. You need to look a little under the hood to see what it actually is. James, in April, we had a major verdict come down in an FCPA trial regarding an individual, and that was Roger Ung. It was a lengthy trial, a lot of evidence around the 1MDB scandal. From my perspective, reading it, reading about it, I had real concerns about the case because of the lead prosecution witness, the cooperating witness, Timothy Leisner. And I guess, number one, I wanted to ask you how you felt about the significance of the trial. And then what do you do when you have a cooperating witness who admits basically on the stand, yeah, I lie all the time. That's what I do. Yeah. Anyway, it just never, I didn't, I couldn't figure out how the jury was going to take that, but I would maybe ask you those two questions to start with and then get your thoughts on the case. Yeah, sure. So I think anytime there's a FCPA conviction and trial, that's a significant uh, event 
or an acquittal. You know, these cases are going, FCBA cases are obviously going to trial much more frequently in the last several years than they did in the past. A lot of reasons for that. I actually tried a couple FCPA cases myself as a prosecutor, but with the increased resources in the FCPA unit, now there's almost 40 prosecutors, years of really intense focusing on individuals, there's been a lot more trials. So I think anytime there's a trial and whether it results in a acquittal or a conviction, that's a significant event. So that's just in and of the fact that we had this trial is significant. And the fact I think that DOJ won this is significant because it was a complicated case. It involves a financial, a lot of complex financial instruments. Those are difficult, whether it's a regular white collar case or a bribery case. So that I think that was significant. The prosecutors were able to explain the transactions and obviously in a way that the jury could grasp. And I say this. it's not easy for me always to grasp these things either. So to, to think about a, a lay person being presented this for the first time, it takes a lot of skill to try to explain those things in a simple fashion to the lay person. And I think your question, Tom, about cooperating witnesses, look, the fact of the matter is cooperators come with all kinds of baggage. They've almost always committed certainly the crime that they are testifying about because they've usually pled guilty to it. When you're presenting a cooperating witness, you got to get under what other bad things have they done. And so you can fulfill your Brady and Giglio requirements and turn that over to the defense. So things like I lie a lot, I've lied before, are pretty typical when you get to cooperators. I remember I had, it's a different context, but I had a, I used to prosecute robbery gangs when I was in Miami. And there was one of my cooperators, we asked him, how many prior robberies have you committed? And he said, I can't remember, <laughs> because he, that's what he did. And I actually kind of liked that answer because the guy was so honest. He's, he didn't try to come up with a number. He's like, look, I committed so many, I can't even remember the number. And we turned that over to the defense and look, this guy's professional robber. He doesn't even remember how it is. So a guy like if Leisner on the stand said, I lie a lot. It's not, that's pretty typical fare for a cooperating witness. And I think when that happens, you just have to deal with it. The biggest thing is corroboration. Just because somebody lies before doesn't mean they're lying about this. And so if you can say, for example, I made this payment and then you have the bank records showing that you have other witnesses saying that happened. You see the results of that payment. Maybe somebody has a new car the next day, whatever it may be. I'm not saying that happened in this trial. But the biggest, most important thing, I think, when you're working with a cooperator is corroboration from outside so that you, on the key points, you can say, ladies and gentlemen, the jury, he lies, he admits to you he lies, but he didn't lie in here on, on this point that really matters, and here's how you can tell why. All he's really doing is explaining to you movement of money and the purchase of that car is exactly what you think it is. It was a bribe and the spending of that bribe. So that's the kind of thing you do with a cooperating witness. And I don't think it's really any different whether it's a robbery case or it's a FCPA case. That's what you really need to do. I'd also say there's always a rule of thumb, never start a case with a cooperator because you're starting off on the bad foot. I always tried, it was, I think it's, I don't know if I came up with myself or if I heard it somewhere, but pre-corroboration. You wanna have some things come in first so that when they hear it from the cooperator who is a bad guy, usually has done some bad things, has committed some crimes, the jury's, oh yeah, okay, this guy's no good, but I do know that car was bought and I do know that payment was trans was wired from this account to that account. So when he says it, I can believe him and not just automatically reject things because he's a liar pants on fire kind of guy. 
But I, there, prosecutors have a whole lot of tricks. Things like uh, you don't find swans in the sewer. That was a big one that we always used. Or we didn't pick this guy to do business with. The defendant did. We just put him up here because this guy chose to associate with him, not because we wanted him. So there's all kinds of little tricks you can, not tricks so much, but it turns of phrases and rhetorical flourishes that you can put to try to do that. Doesn't always work. You remember the Petra Tiger case? from several years ago. I think they did put the cooperator on first and he burst into flames and they had to basically give that case away after the first witness. Whereas other cases were able to corroborate people and do that. Interesting case. And every time these things go to trial, it's a, it's a different set of circumstances, different jury, different district, different judge. You never know how it's going to actually play out when you actually go to trial. I'd like to end this section to ask you, what does it mean internally when you have a very public, very important win at trial? This case involved the 1MDB scandal, one of the biggest in this century. Very well publicized, very well known in the anti-corruption compliance community, in the white-collar defense bar. And DOJ was right up there putting it on the line. And I know you've gone to trial and you felt that pressure and you've had success. And what does it mean internally? For a huge win like that. It feels much better than coming in second. I can tell you, <laughs> I can tell you that. But I think most of the prosecutors, they believe in what they're doing. And so it is rewarding to get a conviction, to feel like your hard work has been paid off. And hopefully you think, especially in FCPA case, sending a deterrent message to the market, especially a big, complex financial case like this, instead of maybe some other cases that involve smaller companies or things like that. I think this case had a uh, particularly interesting angle to it, Tom, if I could address that, which is the sure. circumvention of inter internal economy controls. And I think that for this case in particular, it's an important message. One of the things that DOJ charged Ng with, in, in this case, the defendant, was not just paying the claims, but circumventing his employer's internal accounting controls to try to do that. And it's a very, it's a very, that charge isn't always brought and it certainly isn't brought to trial that often. And so I think in particular here, the fact that DOJ won on that was maybe particularly important, that the, his employer was an issuer. The issuer had important internal controls about when bonds could be approved. And the evidence at trial showed that Ng and his co-conspirators circumvented those accounting controls because they knew that if they followed the right processes and procedures, the deal would have been rejected. And they not only did they convince the jury of that, but there was a post-trial motion for acquittal and the judge agreed. And I would commend compliance practitioners to read this opinion because the judge does a really nice job of going through the internal accounting controls provisions of the FCPA and talking about how these approval process were part of the company's internal accounting controls. And I think that's really important because when I became an FCPA prosecutor, I was confused. What exactly is a book and record for purposes of the FCPA and what exactly is an internal accounting control? And even though, even since I've been doing this for a long time, sometimes wonder about the exact definition. The SEC will come out and say employment policies are internal accounting controls. And maybe they are, but I, they don't seem to fit neatly into that bucket. When I think of an internal accounting control, I don't really think about hiring processes. And this was one of those that was a little bit, maybe the defendant argued it wasn't neatly, it didn't neatly fit into the bucket of an internal accounting control. 
And the judge went very carefully through the internal accounting controls and said, no, look, this is about management authorization of assets, access to assets, and that transactions are executed in accordance with management's general specific authorizations. And you cannot say that the internal approval process for these bonds was not meant to fall within access to assets and transactions executed in accordance with management's authorization. And so I thought it was a really useful opinion in that regard and a very useful trial when here to say the internal kind of controls provisions have teeth. They are not so hard to understand. And if you circumvent them, not only will we bring a case against you for anti-bribery, but we'll bring an internal controls case against you as well. So I think, Tom, in general, trial victories are important, but I think this one actually had a specific compliance message that could be very James, for our our last story, I wanted to use your article on FinCEN urging financial institutions to focus on kleptocracy to have a little bit broader discussion. And specifically in the story, FinCEN has asked financial institutions to assist them in the fight against kleptocracy. Uh, That really ties into several other initiatives I've seen from the U.S. government that seem to urge not simply citizens but corporations to be a part of the fight against money laundering, to be a part of the fight against international bribery and corruption. In December of 2021, the Biden administration released their blueprint for fighting corruption, elevating that fight to the national security level. After the Russian invasion of the Ukraine, at least early in the conflict, one of the most ubiquitous pictures was yachts sailing off, kleptocrats' yachts sailing off to avoid either seizure or extradition to the United States. And that has led to an entire cottage industry of maritime whistleblowers trying to find these yachts. But we've also had, obviously, an increase in trade sanctions and export controls. And the government has made clear, if you have violated any of these, come to us and tell us because we view this as a national security issue. And I really wanted to use this story and maybe these others for a little bit broader discussion is what I am seeing. Is that a fair assessment from where you sit? And how should a compliance profession who has dealt with the FCPA, who has dealt with internal compliance programs or best practices compliance programs, think any differently if what we have done before is now a U.S. national security issue? Yeah, great point, Tom. I think going back a long way has linked foreign bribery with terrorism and other national security interests. We would always say if you're if an official is willing to accept money from a business, they're probably also in certain countries willing to accept money from Al Qaeda as well. And so it's hard. And then some of those states who are taking money from companies were using it for state-sponsored terrorism. So the link between Bribery and national security is a well-founded and an old one, but you're right. It has taken a different turn. Now we're moving from some to more different concerns, more ge- geopolitical concerns. And you're right. Russia is one of them. In in urging financial institutions to focus on kleptocracy, Finson's acting director called out and said that Russia's further invasion of Ukraine is yet another example of how a kleptocracy like Russia harms not only its own citizens, but those living beyond its borders. And part of the idea here is that the Russian government, they they permit kleptocracy, they permit money, they help people evade sanctions, and then they use that money to help 
conduct wars abroad in part, or at least that's how people are supporting the Russian regime because they're getting those benefits. And so I think you're exactly right that there is now an even new link, corruption and national security. And I think in, in some ways, the same building blocks are in place. If you go back to that FinCEN message, they say, look for red flags, banks, when you're processing payments and transactions, look for red flags. And they're ones, you thumb, ones that you would have told all your clients to look for when they're doing their own transactions. Are these transactions involving opaque selection processes? Are there are the foreign officials who are involved in these transactions somehow seem to have assets that are commensurate with what you would think a government salary would be? Are, is money moving in to strange countries that don't have any connection to where you're doing business. Vincent's saying to look at those things. And really that's the same type of thing that you were advising people to look at for years, Tom, in terms of their own compliance program. So they're saying to do I do think that there's a, another level of concern though, because the US government is so committed to using sanctions and punishing sanctions, evasion and things like that, and other trade related sanctions that there, uh, there's a new risk for companies that there could be a violation of not only the FCPA, but also an OFAC regulation or maybe a CFIUS issue involved as well. So there really, there's a, there's more complexity in transactions and there's more risk for companies. I guess the thing that has struck me, James, is, and Vincent was the most explicit, that they wanted financial institution cooperation to help in the fight. Mm. And if we move to other areas where it's not a financial institution, but it's a U.S. public or a private corporation around anti-corruption or a similar business and trade sanctions, does the government need to incentivize companies to step forward when they see these red flags or they have inadvertently tripped over one of these wires to help in this fight against national or fight against corruption that's deemed to be a national security issue in a way that perhaps will lessen the penalty for those who do self-disclose? Yeah, I think so. I think there's obviously the carrot and the stick approach. On the one hand, I think DOJ is becoming very aggressive. If you do trip over one of these things, if you don't report, they're really trying to bring um, various meaningful penalties against companies. But for example, the National Security Division does have something very similar to the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, which is designed to incentivize companies to self-report, cooperate, and remediate as well. So I think as these are becoming more enforced, there is also, on the other hand, Jay trying to bring incentives for companies to self-report and cooperate. James, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. For our listeners, we're going to link to in our show notes to this month's Top 10 International Corruption Anti-Corruption Developments. And I wanted to thank you again and look forward to continuing this conversation. Thanks, Tom. Always a pleasure to talk with you. And- this is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for joining me together with James Kukios on this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I'm thrilled to announce that multiple podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network were recently awarded W3 Awards. All Things Investigations, the Hughes Hubbard Podcast, was awarded an, uh, a silver award for general series law and legal services for podcast because that's what heroes do uh, one for arts and cultures in podcast hidden crime that's Gwen Hassan's podcast one for crime for podcast compliance into the weeds 
with my good friend Matt Kelly. Uh, Matt and I won an award for best co-hosts for podcasts. And the Hill Country podcast was also honored for arts and culture for podcasts. And then finally, Life with GDPR. That's my podcast with Jonathan Armstrong for professional service for podcasts. And I'm really proud to announce that a gold award was given to Trekking Through Compliance once again in arts and culture for podcasts. So the Compliance Podcast Network continues to garner awards. I hope that you will check out one or more of these podcasts. This is Tom Fox. I hope you'll join me next week on another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.